0: On one side, the state. Why would Renthal James Simpson, a man who seemingly had it all, commit such heinous crimes, throw it all away? The one simple truth about the evidence described to you by Mr. Darden is that it shows that Mr. Simpson is a man, not a stereotype, but flesh and blood who can do both good and evil. On the other side, the defense.
1: The evidence in this case we believe will show that O.J. Simpson is an innocent man, wrongfully
0: accused. There was DNA evidence.
2: I believe you described that there was a match between Mr. Simpson and this stain at a number of genetic markers. Is that right?
0: That's correct. There was the prosecution witness who was caught in a lie. How about that, Mr. Fung? Is that a question, Mr. Sheck? Yes. (laughs) How about that picture, Mr. Fung? Does that refresh your recollection that you took the envelope from Andrea Mazzola with your bare hand? Nicole's sister testified about Simpson and Nicole's relationship. OJ grabbed Nicole's crotch and said, this is
2: where babies come from, and this belongs to me. Nicole just sort of wrote it off like it was nothing. Like, you know, like she was used to
0: that kind of treatment. Then there was Mark Furman. Detective Furman,
1: did you plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? I assert my Fifth Amendment privilege.
0: The timeline that placed Simpson at the crime scene was introduced. Alan Park did not see the Bronco on Rockingham at 1022 or 1030. Alan Park buzzed the intercom at Rockingham at 1040, at 1043, and at 1049. There was no answer. Finally, the defense's closing argument. These metaphors
1: about an ocean of evidence or a mountain of evidence, is little more than a tiny, tiny stream, if at all, that points equally toward innocence. That any mountain has long ago been reduced to little more than a molehill under an avalanche of lies
0: and complexity and conspiracy. This is what we've shown you. And the prosecution's last word. With each thrust of that knife, into her body and into Ron's body, there was a release of that anger
1: and that rage. And he stabs and he cuts and he slices until that rage is gone and until these people are dead. And after that rage is gone, he's better.
0: In the beginning, 12 jurors and 12 alternates were selected. Now, you might think a juror would be dismissed for extenuating circumstances like illness, but there were lots of reasons, including bad behavior, personal conflicts, and failing to disclose information. Some jurors were dismissed with no explanation at all. One was let go because he was accused of keeping notes in order to get a book deal. Another turned out to be an employee of Hertz, the car company Simpson had been a spokesperson for. Then there was a juror who failed to expose her own dealings with domestic violence. That didn't sit well with the defense. And there was the 26-year-old single woman who, after four months, was depressed and couldn't stand being sequestered for one more minute. Judge Ito let her go. They saw how stressed out I was and how depressed that I was, and they said, we'll release her. That former juror ended up posing for Playboy magazine. No one anticipated that the jury would be sequestered for 265 days. That's actually 15 days short of a full-term pregnancy. Jurors were away from their families, their jobs, and friends. They had no one to talk to but each other, and they couldn't discuss the trial. Clicks formed, resentment stewed. They couldn't watch television or talk on the phone in their rooms. Every moment was tracked by deputies of the court. Even a nice hotel can start to feel like a prison when you're isolated day after day after day. The toll of sequestration was studied after the trial because it seemed to do as much harm as it did good. The cost of housing, feeding, and guarding these jurors was over $2 million, and there was significant psychological cost. That cost became clear when the trial concluded and the jury was sent to deliberate.
1: I would say a minimum of two weeks and more likely up to three to four weeks. I think that a trial that takes this long, especially this jury, knows how critically important this case is to the world that's watching. They're not going to want to come to a quick decision because then it'll look
0: like they really did not go over all of the evidence. Most legal analysts expected the jury to spend weeks reviewing all of the evidence. But these jurors, they just wanted out. So much evidence to deliberate for as short as they did, and come back with a not-guilty verdict, I think it shows that the jury was pretty irresponsible.
3: This is Confronting O.J. Simpson. I'm your host, Kim Goldman.
2: Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery.
3: The two jurors I'm going to talk to today couldn't be more different. David Aldana, and my first conversation, Lionel Cryer. Lionel may be the best known juror from the case. Some people in the courtroom said he gave a subtle signal when the jury walked into the courtroom to deliver the verdict, and then raised his fist in a Black Power salute after the verdict was read. I've always wanted to ask him about that, and it's taken me 25 years to get my chance.
4: How's your father doing?
3: (laughs) Um, My my dad is okay. He was just uh, here visiting um, with my son. So um, he's good. He lives in Arizona. He's doing okay.
4: Great. I'm glad to hear that. He was
3: hoping that he was able to meet you. And I think that would have been a little too much for everybody to have all of us. I don't know. Really? I think my dad probably got a little This is a good thing.
4: I I feel really good about us sitting here having this conversation. For sure.
3: Why did you agree, though? To sit down. This is an odd, an odd pairing.
4: I agree. I agree. <laughs> but I'll be honest with you, one regret that I've always had in uh, serving on the Simpson jury was that I wasn't able to give the family any sort of closure in the matter at all. And so, when it was presented to me to have the opportunity for you and I to speak, I was like, sure.
3: I'm trying to keep an open mind and to have some warmth in my heart for what you were dealing with and what the other jurors were dealing with, but I can't deny the fact that I still harbor a little bit of like, what the hell? So, just know that I'm going to be wrestling with that. Sure. What did you know, if anything, about O.J. Um, Simpson before the news broke about the murders? Do you
4: remember? Uh, no more than anyone else that, of course, that he went to USC, played football there, and that he, of course, was a uh, an NFL football player. Other than that, though, I didn't have a, a lot of Knowledge.
3: Did you have any initial feelings that you remember after you saw what happened or did you just not pay attention to uh, the news?
4: I recall the days of the tragedy itself. And I know that was a Sunday night. That Monday morning, actually, I was taking a shuttle to the airport. I was hearing the report over the radio about the murders. But whoever the reporters were, they were saying Mr. Simpson was out of town at the time that these murders happened. So I was like, oh, well, then he wasn't involved at all and I was on my way back to the airport. By that time, he was on his way back as a person of interest.
3: So at what point did you receive the jury summons? And did you realize that the jury summons that you got was for this case, or are you kind of in the dark about it?
4: Great question, Kim. It was in early September. It became apparent to me that this is possibly about the Simpson case. I knew that this was going to be an outrageous thing. No, I did not want to be involved in it. However, I also was kind of conflicted about my duty mm-hmm. at that point.
3: So you, you were an alternate.
4: Being an alternate to me felt neutral. Like It's like, okay, I'm an alternate. I don't have to be involved on a, on a big basis. I don't even have to be involved in deliberations. So uh, at least... A couple of weeks before the trial began, there was an issue with two sitting jurors. At that point, I was on panel, and I looked behind me, and I saw all these Black women there. And I'm saying to myself, oh, wow. I don't think having this many Black women on this trial is going to be beneficial for anyone's cause. Why? This involved a a Black man killing a white woman and a white guy. So I'm looking at it like, okay. I guess they're top-loading this because they think all these black women are gonna be mean-spirited towards the black man that was with the white woman. Even to this day, I think that's what the prosecution's case was for, for, for filling it up.
3: Did you think that the panel should have been more diverse?
4: Yes, definitely. I think that it would have made a difference. There was a lot of difficulties on the jury.
3: Personalities and stuff?
4: When you first toss 24 people together from very, very different walks of life and then to be put in a situation where these are the only people you're going to interact with mm-hmm. for a long period of time, it's really hard. And it was very, very stressful.
3: You were instructed that you weren't allowed to talk to each other about stuff, right? Sure. Did that? Did that hold true? I mean, did people really keep to themselves or?
4: No one ever said anything in my presence outside of the realm of what we were supposed to be talking
2: about.
3: Did you have a a feeling or an opinion about the prosecution team when they first started?
4: I tried not to allow myself to be swayed one way or the other about my perceptions about the teams themselves. Mm -hmm. Other than to say this, the prosecution team seemed to be more hostile towards us than the defense team did.
3: It's interesting to hear this after what we heard from prosecutor Bill Hodgman. He said the opposite, that the jury was hostile to the prosecutors.
2: There was hostility towards us throughout the jury selection process. I felt the jurors did not relate to Marcia. I think they were at times kind of mystified by Chris. Sometimes Chris gave off a manner of brooding, aloof, and then I think they were just, what's going on with this guy?
4: As I sat there, I felt Chris Darden was just killing me with his eyes every day, with the looks that he was giving me specifically. And so I I felt very, very uncomfortable sitting there. All the time. During the whole process. I vacillated throughout the trial. I mean, I would go back to my room one night and say, yeah, based off of what I saw tonight, he's got to be guilty. The next night I come back and it's like, oh, but wait a minute, this was brought up now and it it looks like maybe not. I think that the prosecution were overconfident about the case that they were presenting and not understanding their adversary's ability to break down everything that you present. And that's what was going on here. In the prosecution's case, Mm -hmm. the blood evidence, I know that that was supposedly the focus of their whole trial.
0: If you remember, blood matching Simpson, Ron and Nicole, was found at the crime scene outside of Nicole's condo where she lived. Detectives also found a cap and left-hand bloody glove on the scene. Now, the same blood was found in Simpson's white bronco. DNA proved it. Later, the right hand glove would be discovered on Simpson's property, matching the same blood found at the crime scene.
4: And to me, this is a, a flaw I felt. Because you presented the blood evidence at the beginning of the trial, as time wore on, I think a lot of jurors started forgetting about what was presented with the blood. It should have been presented towards the end of their case. Yeah, I think it would have been more compelling to the jury. Now, as the blood evidence was being presented by the prosecution, I'm saying, wow, yes, this is this is compelling. But then, of course, the defense, they bring in these forensic experts that started, started questioning the integrity of samples, how they were either collected, how they were transported, and also cross-contamination of right. the samples.
3: I remember thinking, how in the fuck could it be anybody else? I mean, there was just... <laughs> can you say that? I can say that. <laughs> okay. It's my show. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: How exactly would a rogue police officer collect and pour victim's blood and Simpson's on the gloves just as the investigation was starting and then deliver them to two separate locations without even knowing anything about where Simpson was or if he was a suspect?
3: So did you believe their theory that the evidence was planted?
4: If we say evidence, are we referring to the gloves? Oh, well, they and said the, everything and was planted. First of all, the killer... He was able to get rid of bloody clothes, the bloody knife, and the bloody shoes, which were never found. Mm-hmm. I don't think that a person that commits a crime of that nature is going to drop a glove at one location and a glove at another location, as well as a hat. I actually do believe that those pieces of evidence were planted by Mark Furman.
3: And so you make sense to you that... Not knowing where O.J. Simpson was, or who was home, or if he was alive or dead, that there wasn't an alibi, they didn't know anything about him, that one police officer would risk his entire career to plant some evidence, that's a little risky.
4: Even if they're participating in the trial of the century?
3: They didn't know it was the trial of the century. Oh, at that I point. do How believe did they, they did.
4: I that believe or, everyone knew that. I mean, I heard it. But, would, but that's exactly
3: right. In such a big case, why right. would they risk all of their careers? Why, hey, why would they I, risk? I
4: asked the same question.
3: house, we are super busy between sports and school and work and volunteering and just life. It makes it really hard to always make sure that there's food on the table. We came across DoorDash. Actually, my son introduced it to me and I love it too. It's so easy because DoorDash connects you to our favorite restaurant in the city. It's just super easy. You just download the app and then you choose what you want to eat. And then a Dasher will bring it to you anywhere you are. You can order from your local go-to's or you choose from your favorite chain like Chipotle or Wendy's or my favorite, Cheesecake Factory. So I never have to worry about eating. Just let dinner and food come to you with DoorDash. Simple. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code CONFRONTING. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code CONFRONTING. Again, that's promo code CONFRONTING, $5 off your order from DoorDash. I have a complete love affair with shoes, but what comes with wearing shoes are some pitfalls like sweaty, sticky, smelly, and sometimes uncomfortable feet. Sometimes I get heel and toe blisters. And then if you have to wear little socks, it's hard because they slide down your heel and you can still see them sometimes. So I came across this product called Gex. It was developed to allow you to keep your no-sock style, but be comfortable and stench-free while doing so. They actually fit inside your shoe. You don't put them on your feet, you just stick them in and you leave them in the shoe. They take a few minutes to put in and you'll happily forget about Swamp Foot all summer. Gex have adjustable placement guarantees for comfort and a true no-show look. Gex are available for men and women in many shoe styles, including flats, heels, sneakers, and loafers. Visit mygex.com. That's M-Y-G-E-K-K-S.com for 20% off your first order using the code CONFRONTING. Again, that's mygex.com for 20% off your first order using the code CONFRONTING Did you feel like domestic violence was a big part of this case or should have been given more? I
4: felt like because you beat someone doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to necessarily kill them also. So I kind of gave the benefit of the doubt, and I'll admit to that, would he actually kill his wife while those kids were upstairs? Mm-hmm. And so that's the part that I, I, I kept you didn't, having the problem. You couldn't with. envision
3: that he would escalate to that level? Yes,
4: and that's why I was looking for that overwhelming, compelling piece of evidence to say, yeah, he's the guy that definitely did this, for sure.
3: I tried to understand where Lionel was coming from, but I heard those 911 calls in court. I heard Nicole on the phone with police, pleading with Simpson to stop yelling that the kids were asleep. He didn't care. The only thing he was focused on was his rage.
0: Can you get someone over here now? He's back. Well, okay, what does he look like? He's O.J. Simpson. I think you know his record. Could you just get somebody okay. over here? <laughs> They broke the back door down to get in. Okay, okay. wait a minute, what's your name? Nicole Simpson. Okay, is he, what is he doing? Is he threatening you?
2: <laughs> I'm going nuts. Okay, the kids, I'm
1: too I'm Just stay on the line, okay?
4: You're aware of the civil trial, of course. Mm-hmm. You know that there was all kinds of evidence presented at that trial that never came up at my trial.
3: When I hear things like this, I can't help but think back to what Chris Darden shared with me.
1: Part of the problem with the prosecution of that case is that the prosecution wasn't ready.
4: And and as I heard some of, some of the evidence from that trial, I kept saying, well, hey, if you'd have presented this to me, you know, it could have swayed me in a different way, obviously. Like what? like his statements when he came back from Chicago, because he was very evasive, he was, he was moving around.
0: When Detectives Lang and Van Adder recorded their interview of Simpson the day after the murders, he was full of inconsistencies and contradictions. But the prosecution didn't use that as evidence in the criminal trial. However, that conversation was used by the Goldman's attorney when they sued Simpson for wrongful death in the civil case.
4: If, if we could have heard that, I think that would have made a difference. The Bruno Mali shoes. Mm-hmm. They actually put a pair of Bruno Mali shoes on his foot. Right. They didn't do that in my trial. We
3: didn't find the pictures. Okay. The, I'm just the saying. The pictures didn't show. Trust me. Do you think that, that the Bronco chase would have made a difference?
4: It would have went towards his way of thinking at the time. By the way, he was carrying on in the back of the car. He was thinking like a guilty man. As Al Collins was driving, like, and why wasn't Al Collins ever called? Right. You know, so things of that nature I felt were where were, were the prosecution dropped the ball in my case. Maybe we should have just left everything on, on the floor, as they say, for the jury and for the world to make their own decisions. Also, I didn't think that they elaborated enough about what was the cause of the cut on this face. Right. I think that the prosecution should have focused more on the cut and where it actually occurred. And then, of course, the infamous glove fiasco. They went through this big elaborate thing to put the gloves on his hand. And he's, of course, showing you that these gloves don't fit me.
3: Did you think the glove fit him?
4: No, not at all. But in the back of my mind, I could understand why it didn't fit, too, though. What do you mean? At the time, I didn't understand the part about the shrinkage. Also, that he had on uh, the latex glove. He was
3: bending his hand. Okay, I didn't... (laughs) He was bending his fingers. I but was I watching. But I could definitely yeah.
4: see that it, it wasn't fitting him, though. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when the, the fifth guy comes back and uses all this play tough about don't fit equipped kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, well. But it was compelling to me. I think there was a certain arrogance about the prosecution that this is a slam dunk case. And so, you know, we're going to give you this. How can you think anything other than what we're showing you here? And then, of course, and then the defense comes along, and they can poke very good holes at Right. It.
3: During that time, did you find yourself tiring out with Kim, the process? I don't know if you're
4: aware. I had two major health incidents. I felt like I was under a tremendous amount of stress. Mm-hmm. I wanted to leave the jury. I wanted to get dismissed. I had an asthma attack uh, about halfway through the trial. I had to be rushed to the hospital. I had to be put on uh, uh, breathing apparatuses and all. I think my lung capacity when I was brought in was like at 15%. It
3: was stress-induced?
4: Oh my God, it was just outrageous. And then also, right around the time that the defense was beginning to present their case, of course, I had a mild heart attack. When I got back from the hospital for that, I requested to go see Judge Ito. I, I I don't want to do this anymore. I tried to get off the
0: case. In any other case, Lionel would have been dismissed after having both a heart attack and an asthma attack. But at this point, they were running out of jurors and were in danger of having to declare a mistrial. Judge Ito was highly motivated to keep Lionel on the panel.
4: He turns to Johnny Cochran and them and asks them questions, and then the next thing you know, they're volunteering tickets to uh, UCLA football games and all to try to keep us interest because I guess Someone must have went and told them that I'd watched football.
0: It's no surprise that Judge Ito was pulling football tickets out of his robe. By the end of the trial, there were only two of the original jurors left. The other 10 were all alternates.
3: So was the entire jury angling to get out of there?
4: My perception during deliberation was that that was definitely the deciding factor. Now, during
3: deliberation, the three and a half hours?
4: Here's the thing, Kim.
3: And again, no, no, no. You're, you're <laughs> like, absolutely correct. No, you yeah. are correct.
4: But here's the thing. One of the biggest flaws in this whole case is the sequestration of the jury for this length of time that it was. That whole 10 and a half month process kind of whittled people down to the point where I'm not going to fight for my convictions at this point. The night before deliberations, I'm in my room and I'm going, oh my God, I, I'm more inclined to go not guilty. But I'm thinking... Am I the only person that sees it that way? Will everyone be ganging up on me because I'm the only one that has the view that I have? I think I recall I didn't even sleep that night.
0: After 126 witnesses, nearly eight months of testimony and countless delays, jurors are considering three options. Innocent, guilty of first-degree murder, or guilty of second-degree murder.
4: I was all gung-ho for, for participating in some great deliberations with some differing ideas, and right. some differing views. When I walked in there, someone says, let's do a straw vote. And of course, they came back 10 to 2, not guilty. I, mean, I kind of did, it, oh, yeah, this thing is almost over with. We're about to get out of here.
3: So what was the conversation in between the, the 10 and 2 vote to the 12?
4: I stood up. I said, we just had a 10-2 vote here. That means there's at least two people in this room that don't see things the way that the rest of the people see it. I said, now, right now is the time for anyone with an altering view to step forward and make that presentation. The room stayed quiet. Nobody did. And I felt really bad about it because I was like, wow, that means somebody here is not, they're not exerting their their own feelings. And that's when I realized, all this is about is these people want to leave.
0: The jury started deliberations at 9.40 a.m. and just 90 minutes later, asked for Alan Park's testimony to be re-read. It was a key piece of the prosecution's timeline. Here's how one reporter explained it. The limousine driver who took OJ to the airport that night turned out to be a star witness. He described arriving at OJ's house about half an hour after the killings and finding no one home. Then he says he saw a shadowy figure going into the house. And seconds later, OJ answered the intercom. It was all damaging testimony. At 1 p.m., they heard that testimony. Then, an hour later, they were done. It took less than four hours to discuss more than eight months of testimony. It was so unexpected that none of the lawyers were anywhere near the courthouse. So Judge Ito held the verdict to be read the next day.
3: I remember we were being told that you guys were deliberating and that the only question that you had was about Alan Park's testimony.
4: Oh, well, and this is why I'm so glad that I get an opportunity to talk to you. Let me say this. That deliberation was already set long before they started asking about this evidence. What it was is they wanted to cover up the fact that you've already come to a decision. So that's why somebody decided, well, okay, let's look at this piece of evidence with Alan Park. And it had to do with uh, his testimony regarding uh, whether or not he actually did see Mr. Simpson come out to put a a bag out.
0: So that uh, was all BS?
4: To me, it was. And it's unfortunate, Kim, because I know this is, your, this is your brother, this is your loved one that I'm talking about.
3: So the day that you reached your verdict, we didn't hear the verdict until the following day, right? So in between those two time periods, you had to have known that your verdict...
4: I don't want to tell you what happened, Kim. I really don't want to have to tell you this. Why? So we went back to the hotel, and they had kind of what you might call a going-away party. There was food served and, uh, and people were all talking about how glad they were it was over and we were gone and everybody was going home and the next day. And so basically that was really all that was discussed at that point. And again, I, I never had a discussion with any other juror before, during or after the case about any part of what they thought about that trial.
3: But there were stories that this was revenge for the Rodney King verdict. And I've heard people tell me that deputies heard jurors saying that this acquittal was really payback.
4: I'd like to know who they'd heard say something like that then, because I had a lot of trust issues with the deputies. There were clashes between deputies and jurors. I mean, I had clashes with deputies. And so eventually they switched out that whole group Of deputies, so they may have put stuff out there just to taint the jury's verdict or the perception of it. That's just my personal feeling. What do
3: you say to the rumor that when the jury came into the jury box that day that there was a little wink and a, a smirk from you to Carl Douglas?
4: No, no. Again, let me say this: these media people they will sit there and make something out of nothing. And I learned that over time.
0: Reporter Shireen Megami must have quite an imagination, because she says she has a perfect recollection of what Lionel did when the jury came into the room.
2: The morning of the verdict, they
3: brought the jury in, and Lionel Cryer looked at the defense, and just, bare it was almost imperceptible, closed his eyes a little and just nodded a little. He gave the signal. I knew that moment that it was not guilty.
4: You would have to be in my head and know that that's what I was thinking to even come out and say something like that.
3: And then when you raised your fist up, I mean, people thought that was a black power
4: salute. Stupid thing to do, first of all, but I was trying to say, hey, look, dude, you may have gotten away with something here. So by all means, try to do good deeds with your life and try to try to be a better person. Go be with your kids. Go be a good guy now. That's all that was about, was just trying to make a statement to him to just try to be a better person in life if you can. So for everyone to just jump to this conclusion that this was all about a message for the black community. If you knew me and you knew my family and my background, my family is an amalgamation of all kinds of different races of people. So I grew up uh, interacting with all kinds of people. So I didn't come in there with this whole black thing going on in my head. I do believe now, of course, you know him.
3: What? Now I don't?
4: I do believe for a fact that he definitely did go in and kill them.
3: You do believe that?
4: Oh, yes. My perception of him changed not too many years after that trial. When he put out this so-called fictitious book about if I killed him, oh my God, it grossed me out to even think that he would do such a thing. And I'm like, This this could only be somebody who really did go over there and murder these innocent people. After the trial, I was able to meet a couple of people that knew him and Nicole, and they were telling me about parts about their life where they were two people that pushed each other's buttons. I kind of was taken aback by that. Basically, they were two people that tried to to do things to irritate each other. She must have just irritated him to the point where he decided to come over there and kill her. My whole opinion of him changed at that point, and it was too late.
3: Do you have regrets about not making that decision back then,
4: or? In hindsight, based on evidence presented at the trial I oversaw, I would still render the same verdict that I did.
3: Was it hard to transition back into everyday life?
4: Very much so. In fact, I was, I was—I had to take a stress leave from my job. Uh, I was under a lot of anguish at that time. And then of course, there were the problems when I went back to work with people that I considered to be friends that were no longer my friends anymore based off of what I did in that jury. So it, it was a, a hard, hard thing for me to deal with. It will never give you closure for sure, but maybe it'll help give you some form of comfort.
3: I think what it does is it gives me a little insight as to what was going on and where you were at.
4: I'm pretty sure there's things that we could have did as a jury better, but uh, I'm of the opinion now that good lawyers can get a guilty person off. Yeah. If you put together the right kind of team, then you got a good chance of getting off with murder.
3: I have a lot to digest. It's a good thing I have an hour ride home.
4: Again, I'm just very, very sorry that I I couldn't give you the verdict that you definitely deserved and you should have had. Thank you. Thank you. By all means, it was my pleasure. Nice to meet you. Being here with you today. Thank you. For sure.
0: Kim, what was your impression of Lionel?
3: Lionel walked into the studio wearing this, like, fly-looking hat, like a fedora um, he just looked smooth and calm. I, he was a lot calmer than I was, but it was a little off-putting. Um, I've never heard him speak before, so his his voice was deep and kind of soothing. So it was chill. Like That's my impression. Did you believe his explanation
0: of why he put his fist in the air in the courtroom?
3: I did not believe his explanation. Um, I don't think that it was like, a, um, pray for you, buddy. Yeah. I did not get that at all.
0: Now's your chance to live a better life, and I hope you go on to do that. That's better expressed in a note than a fist in the air. Just saying.
3: Yeah, I was there. It was very deliberate. It had nothing to do with, like, be well. Yeah. When the verdict came so quickly... What were you thinking? I was very confused and I was um, nervous because I didn't know what it meant. And then very quickly, everybody had an opinion one way or the other about what it meant. And so I I hibernated in in my brother's room. I didn't know what to believe. It didn't make any sense to me that it could happen so quickly.
0: Was this the first time you had ever heard somebody say the jury was just killing time? Yes. I know
3: I've always felt that way. Um, I don't know that I interpreted my feelings as them wasting time. I just always believed that they didn't do their job and that they were done long before they got into the deliberation room. I don't think I ever heard him say it was basically a CYA couple of hours so that people wouldn't think that we weren't doing what we were supposed to in there. Right. So my next conversation was with David Aldana. It was hard. He was another juror whose pain was just so palpable. And it went to places that I didn't expect. America has fallen in love with this new game called Best Fiends, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game. And I am one of them because I think last time we spoke, I was on level 55 and I can't stop playing. I think I'm in like level 82, I think is where I left off. It's awesome because I can just sit and I can use my brain outside of all the other things I have to think about in the world and i get to solve all these fun puzzles and i collect these cute little characters it has this really cool storyline that keeps me completely engaged and it's really easy to learn and it's difficult to master though i get to do this when i'm sitting in the car waiting for my kid or at the doctor's office um i can play offline anywhere it's really easy and i encourage you to join the rest of us download this five star rated mobile puzzle game on the apple app store or in google play and you should look for Best Fiends. That's Friends Without the R. So, again, that's Best Fiends. And you too can solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. So, again, that's Friends Without the R, Best Fiends. So, we are en route to sit down and meet with David Aldana today. David is one of the jurors from the criminal case that voted not guilty. I have never met or spoken with him before. I just wanted the jury to follow the law, to follow the evidence, to not get sidetracked by all the bullshit that was going on in the courtroom, to be smarter than the defense team assumed they were I want to know what's happened to David. Has it affected his life? Has it affected his friendships, his relationship, his health, his well-being? Spewing all this, I'm feeling a little angry again. I appreciate I know. I know that it was probably not an easy decision for you to to want to sit down with me, but I'm curious as to, like, what you have to go through and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I want to sit and talk to Kim.
1: It wasn't necessarily just to talk to you, but I'm sure you have questions for me just to maybe help answer them for you.
3: So I do have a lot of questions, so let's start from the beginning. Were you surprised to be selected as a juror?
1: I think the only reason why I got picked, which I was the first one to get picked, was because I said I didn't want to do it. Everybody else before me said they wanted to do it.
3: Yeah. Why didn't you want to do it?
1: Well, my son was three years old. Uh I didn't want to do it. And then when they sat everybody else and I ended up staying there, I was like, what did I just get myself into?
3: When you saw the prosecution put on their case, did you think initially that they had a strong case against Simpson?
1: You know, in my mind, it was like, oh, she's going to hang this guy. They got him dead to rights. Every time the prosecution would seem like their clear-cut winner, The defense would come back and, boy, just hit him hard.
3: Can you give me an example?
1: For instance, Fung, the criminalist. Dennis Fung? He said, oh, I collected every piece of evidence. I collected it all. The defense lawyer, Barry Sheck, I think he was the best attorney out of them all. He came out and showed that he didn't collect the evidence. The rookie was collecting all the evidence.
3: You mean Andrea Mazzola? She was the junior criminalist who worked on the case.
0: How about that picture, Mr. Fung? Does that refresh your recollection that you took the envelope from Andrea Mazzola with your bare hand? So what you said before
1: wasn't true. It was to the best of my recollection at the time. The guy was caught lying. It's like, well, if he's lying then, how can you rely on anything he says?
0: Criminalist Dennis Fung spent more time on the stand than any other witness nine days. During cross-examination, Fung was forced to acknowledge that some of his previous testimony was incorrect. Simpson's team argued that there was contamination of the evidence collected at the crime scene. The jury rendered Fung's testimony unreliable.
1: And then Furman, oh my god. Oh, he was horrendous. You know, he was a dirty cop. As far as I'm concerned, anything that he touched, testified to, is no good.
3: So you think that he planted the glove?
1: I, in my mind, I think he did.
3: So your, your belief is that everything was planted, essentially?
1: Not everything. But if you think this part of the evidence was planted, what wasn't? Just like they didn't find that blood drop on the fence until three weeks later. A lot of that
0: stuff just didn't make sense. A drop of Simpson's blood was found on a rear gate at Nicole's place three weeks after the murders. But original crime scene photos show it was there all along. I'm just going back
3: to, like, the very first things. They found the cap. They found the glove. They found hair and fibers that were my brother's. Like, how did they plant all that stuff before Furman came on the scene, before they even talked to O.J. Simpson, before they knew where he was? They didn't even know about the cut on his hand. Like, how did all that other stuff? And then, and all these officers have to stand around and go, "Okay, we got this. We're going to cover each other. We're going to plant all this evidence. We're going to cover each other's asses. We don't care about our pension. We don't care about our retirement. We don't care about our careers. We're going to frame a guy that we, for the most part, we give high fives to. That we give him free passes when he beats the shit out of his wife, and we're going to we're going to frame him just in case.
1: They wanted to get. More on him. That's why I always said, hey, he's either really an innocent guy
3: or he was guilty as hell. But they tried framing him, too. I just, I feel like if there was a video that you guys still wouldn't have convicted him. I mean, because they would have found a reason to think that was doctored. What was your take on the domestic violence
2: Components. You're going to hear him in a minute. He's about to come in again. Okay, just stay on the line. I it's don't
0: sure. want to
2: stay on the line. He's going to beat the
1: shit. Wait a minute, wait. <laughs> just stay on the line so we can know what's going on until the police get there, okay? Oh, that really sucked for Nicole. That that part don't fly with me. But in the jury, one of the women had said, you know, that there's a lot of men out there who hit their wives, girlfriends. That A lot of guys right. hit women, but they all don't kill them coming from a woman's point of view okay that that did weigh into my head
3: did you feel like Marcia and Johnny were evenly matched like did you find yourself comparing the two
1: she was definitely outclassed the defense would say good morning and she well she, she wouldn't say anything she was pretty cold
3: what were your impressions of OJ Simpson while you were sitting there
1: you know what I kind of made it a point not to look at him I would glance that way and I could see that he was looking at the jury. You know, I caught him a few times, you know, when I would look up or something. I try not to show any emotion, keep my mouth as straight as possible. None of this, or ooh, or ah, or anything like that.
3: Were there times that you were frustrated with the prosecution?
1: There were certain things that they would do that, oh my goodness, we, we, we understand, we know this.
3: What do
1: you mean? How do I put this in the right words? With your brother. They already went over what the cause of death was. But he had like 12 small cuts on his hand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All you had to do was say there were defensive wounds. Mm-hmm. Cut and dry but they went over every single one and spent two days on that. This wasn't the cause of death. Boy, this is hard. Um, Take your time. One thing that sticks with me And it does affect me to this day. were uh, the pictures,
3: the crime scene pictures.
1: Yes, and that sticks right here. Yeah.
2: They were bad. Yeah, I'm
0: so sorry. It's
3: okay. It's okay. Am I, am I hearing you that they they were just making the point over and over and over and over again? Correct. And you were growing tired of that, growing right. weary of that.
1: Correct. I even wrote down a note and gave it to the deputy to give it to the judge. We understand.
3: One thing that's always frustrated me was the three-and-a-half-hour deliberation after nine months of testimony. How does, how does that happen? Well, first
1: we came in with... Well, let's see where everybody stands. Three guilty or four guilty, something like that. They asked a few questions. Well, what about this? And a lot of it was on the DNA. Pretty much everybody agreed right away that anything that Fung had to deal with, you know, he lied, tried to cover his ass, it's gone. Furman, everything's gone. And then that was pretty much about it right there. And then we voted again and we came back unanimous.
3: Was there any concern that you guys had that this is gonna look bad, that we've only been in here for three and a half hours?
1: No, uh uh-uh.
3: 25 years later, are you still 100% convinced that you made the right decision?
1: with the same evidence, the same thing, had to do it all over again, my decision would be the same.
3: I appreciate your honesty because there are other jurors that said I've changed my mind. And I think it's interesting that we both sat in that courtroom. I mean, I didn't miss a day either. And um, how we can hear it totally differently.
1: You want justice to be served. I'm on the outside looking in, but it's it's affecting you for the rest of your life.
3: Don't you think it affected you too?
1: Actually, yeah, it, it has. Oh well, that's why I moved out of LA. Lost a lot of friends, people treating me differently, getting harassed, not just verbally, but physically attacked. Even the, I mean, yeah, what's that one lawyer's name? The white guy for the defense, uh Bailey? No. Whitesman, Shapiro. Shapiro. Yeah, I like to get a hold of his ass. He <laughs> Why? called me he called me stupid on TV. Why? Why? Uh you said him- I was stupid, I was ignorant, but uh I'll show him what ignorant is one day. One day our paths will cross. Everybody's time. Everybody runs into somebody somewhere.
3: Were there other things that have have stayed with you? You.
1: Hearing you cry. And looking over and seeing you hugging your dad. I just wanted to get out of there. I never thought I'd be sitting here or anywhere with you face to face. Because I always told myself, well, that's not going to happen. But, um... Uh,
3: Why did you think that?
1: I, I didn't think you going really be as respectful as you are. <laughs> no matter how you feel about me, you know, you've treated me with respect and I, I do appreciate that.
3: I appreciate you being honest with me. I appreciate you not trying to change your mind in this moment that you're sticking to it. Um, I I respect that you had a job to do. I appreciate that you didn't try to get out of it. So I can't find fault in that.
1: I, I can see in your face you're hurt. And it'll more than likely never, ever go away.
2: mm
3: mm-hmm.
1: but, but I wish the best for you.
3: Thank you. Wow. Were
0: you surprised that he cried?
3: It was very intense in the room. It was, it was, I think he was very nervous coming in. And I think it was hard. I, I think it was hard for him to stay honest with me too. I, I didn't like what he was telling me, but I certainly felt for him.
0: One thing that surprised me was that David and Lionel had two totally different recollections of the first
3: vote. It's a big difference between one person saying it was 10 to 2 versus the other one saying it's 8 to 4. I mean, that, that's a vast, vast gap.
0: That means you have to have
3: a deeper and longer discussion. And it goes back to, again, thinking, where are people wanting to hold on to their story? How honest are people with me in this conversation? And and I think I was left with, I don't, I don't really know. Again, somewhere in the middle is the truth, and I don't know that I'm ever
0: going to know for sure. Is it jarring to hear David Aldano say that a woman said that just because a man beats his wife doesn't mean he'd murder her?
3: It is jarring because... You you can hear the rage in the killer when he's on the 911 tapes. have heard testimony throughout the case of people talking about his violent temper. That he beat her. And that she left pictures in a safe deposit box, that she had a diary. I mean, she had fear. And then again, you can't discount all the evidence that pointed to him. So to then just suddenly say, well, but I don't think that he could really have killed her, that has nothing to do with the evidence. Did you find anything
0: that was in common between the two jurors you talked to
3: today? how it impacted both of them and how at different points in the case, they held on to different feelings. David specifically with the crime scene photos and the autopsy and how much that really resonated with him and how much that impacted him. The pictures were up in the jury. And then I literally was like just behind the right corner of the board. So if you were scanning the pictures, my face was right there. So I can't imagine what that experience was like for them. And so while my head and my heart are torn because my head is saying, just toughen up, just figure it out. You've got your job to do. I also can't deny that there is a lot of emotion. They were exhausted. It was a lot to absorb, but I still feel like they failed and I'm sorry that they suffered. But my suffering's greater. On the next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson. He wasn't punished in any way in the criminal trial. The civil trial became a second go-round to get some justice for Ron.
4: He extended his hand, and I shook it, and I immediately felt awful. Wow, I just got seduced in that moment. The fact that I'm being given a
1: chance to sit in a room with a man who I know killed two people is kind of fascinating. An innocent man would not lie about the murder of the
4: mother of the soldier. He had asked me, Do you still think I did it? And I told him to his face that I felt he was guilty. And he exploded.
0: Can't
3: wait for the next episode of Confronting OJ Simpson. Listen to episode eight right now and ad-free when you sign up for Wondery Plus at wondery.com slash plus. That's wonder ycom slash P-L-U-S to hear episode eight of Confronting O.J. Simpson. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at at ConfrontingPod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussions from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever platform you listen to podcasts. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Confronting OJ Simpson is executive produced by me, Kim Goldman, and my co-host, Nancy Glass, along with executive producers, Ben Fetterman and Andrea Gunning, supervising producer, Carrie Hartman, Produced by Julie Clark and Chris O'Ryan. Story producer, Tony Davis. Audio editing done by lead editor, Matt Delvecchio and editor, Dean Welsh. The archive, research and production team includes Jamie Richard, Megan Paisley, Jessica Little and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kenny Kohler and Mark Downing. Bart McCatchy was the post supervising producer. Audio mix done by Dave Saya, assisted by Dale Epperson. Music and original composition created by Mive Music. And special thanks to Laurent Joven at Migrate Sound. Confronting O.J. Simpson was produced by Glass Entertainment Group in partnership with Wondery.
0: Some material, including court testimony, was edited for time. a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in Status Untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he
3: had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was
0: dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts,